Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout, outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Hi, I'm Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Medicine. Thanks for tuning in, pulling us out of the digital ether, or whatever you'd like to call it. I've just wrapped up a great discussion with David Wright about his 2011 book, Downs, The History of a Disability, published by Oxford University Press. The book was awarded the Dingle Prize by the British Society for the History of Science in 2013, which marks it as a work that speaks to a non-specialist audience while encapsulating the virtues of current historiography of science and medicine and bringing new visibility to an often neglected area of study. The book certainly lives up to its accolades and makes for a compelling, concise read, and I urge listeners interested in everything from the history of psychiatry to the politics of medicine to disability studies to just generally good social history to go out and buy the book for themselves. As I learned over the course of the interview, Down syndrome is difficult to talk about. Many insist that calling people with Down syndrome patients or even claiming they suffer is insensitive, and even that the word disability obscures the lived reality of the condition. One can imagine, then, that its history is similarly intractable. In the book, David Wright masterfully shows us how the social and legal issues around what was, in the early modern period, referred to generally as idiocy, predate our medical understanding of the condition. More importantly, social and legal precedents for treating those judged as mentally inferior predate modern medicine itself, a challenge to traditional accounts of medical knowledge and power. Tracing articulations of the condition through the 20th century, the book eloquently frames a paradox at the heart of modern medicine. As our capacity to medically intervene has increased over time, through genetic testing and otherwise, 
Social forces have reciprocally helped normalize many conditions, adding new ethical dimensions to issues previously understood merely as problems of eradication. Wright uses Down syndrome as a lens into the complex process of medicalization, which is mitigated by forces within and outside of the medical establishment, professional credit, changes in the education system, the rise of psychological metrics, serendipitous laboratory findings, and even the families of political figures. It all makes for an engaging and critically nuanced book from an accomplished social historian with a long-standing and even personal association with the subject. As a side note, this is my first interview for the New Books Network, in addition to being my first podcast ever, and one never knows quite what to expect upon taking up such an endeavor. While I was a little bit nervous at first, especially being mindful of potential technical difficulties, when the conversation really got going, things got much easier. I hope that over time my podcast will help contribute to learned discourse by bringing scholars and practitioners, and often hybrids of the two, into one space where issues in medicine can be discussed openly. So let's treat my own evolution as an interviewer as a metric for the success of this experiment. Hi, my name is Mikey McGovern from the New Books and Medicine channel, speaking t- uh, tonight here with David Wright. Uh, David Wright is a professor of the history of medicine at McGill University in uh, Canada, and uh, we're going to be talking about his uh, 2011 book, Downs. So welcome to New Books and Medicine, David. Thank you very much for having me. The way we like to begin things in uh, the New Books Network is by having each of our authors describe a bit more about their background and what got them into academia in the first place. So uh, could you let us know, um, you know, where are you coming from as a writer and as a scholar? Well, um, I'm a a Canadian. I I grew up in Ontario, in London, Ontario, which is about halfway between Toronto and Detroit. Um, I guess I've always been interested in history, and I read history at McGill uh, in the mid-1980s. And while I was studying history, uh, I didn't necessarily at the time have a particular area of specialization or interest. I was also simultaneously working in the summers at a research institute and institution for uh, the developmentally disabled um, and uh, that in itself was inspired or at least uh, sparked by the fact that my younger sister, Susan, was born with Down syndrome. And so I was always interested in uh, developmental disabilities, what we might now call as intellectual disabilities. And so over time, those twin themes, those twin research interests, they sort of entangled and informed each other. And as I did my graduate work, and then went to England to do my doctorate work at, at Oxford, I became quite interested in what was then a new field called the social history of medicine. And that was more or less taking social history or interdisciplinary approaches to medical history topics. And I unsurprisingly chose the rise of asylums for uh, the developmentally handicapped as my doctoral thesis topic. And I just continued to research that. Uh, and to to explore different aspects of the social history of the asylum, but not not the lunatic asylum as we classically know it from Michel Foucault and others, but rather these different types of asylums that emerged in the 19th century that were dedicated to the educational training of children 
who were born with some sort of congenital developmental disability. Okay, excellent. So um, your doctoral thesis then, was um, was that where this book grew out of, or was your doctoral thesis more focused on asylums as institutions and their rise as such? Well, that's a good question. Uh, yes and no. Um, I wrote my doctoral thesis on the very first asylum, what were then called asylum for idiots, right? And I'm not using the term in a pejorative sense, just right. in, a, you know, in the historic sense. Um, so the first asylum for idiots in the English-speaking world was established just south of London. It was called the Earlswood Asylum. And I wrote my doctoral thesis on that. There's wonderful archival sources that still exist in the what was then called the Surrey Record Office. And the interesting thing about the, well, one of the many interesting things about the Earlswood Asylum was that the second medical superintendent was John Langdon Down, after whom Down syndrome was named. And so although my doctoral thesis was a social history of that institution, I guess you could say that the ultimately the book on the history of Down syndrome, more broadly speaking, did, did emerge from my research uh, at the doctoral level, yes. Okay, so, and you explained before that um, you have a sister who is uh, affected with Down syndrome, and was that um, your, was that the impetus for writing a book on the history of Down syndrome more generally? Well, you know, I guess you could say that, you know, the, just in, very, in a very practical sense, I had, I had no plans whatsoever to write a general history of Down syndrome. So um, Helen Bynum said, no, 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 you know, we're interested in writing the history of disorders. Uh, there is a book by my colleague, Andrew Skull, who wrote a book, on, it was a history of hysteria, for example. And so I said, okay, that's fine. You know, I, I, I'd welcome the opportunity to write uh, sort of crossover book, uh, you know, a book accessible to a general audience, but still, you know, based on, on rigorous scholarship on the history of Down syndrome. I thought this would be a wonderful opportunity to open up historical perspectives to, you know, individuals who were, who were somehow engaged in advocacy uh, of some sort for, for individuals with Down syndrome. So I thought it was a wonderful idea, but it wasn't really my idea. It was somebody else's idea. I just sort of <laughs> took the football and ran with it to a certain extent. And I'll add for our listeners out there who have not yet read the book that I think that it really does live up to its uh, reputation as both an accessible and extremely erudite uh, book that traces not only the history of a disorder, but uh, the medical background in which it was, um, in which it was really well, quite actively made at various uh, points. So I actually want to... I, w- I want to start with the uh, the middle of the book because I think there's a very uh, evocative instance involving one of the major characters in the history of Down syndrome who might not be as well known to um, you know say an Anglophone audience. Uh, this is uh, Jerome uh, Lejeune, who uh, is known as the discoverer of the uh, trisomy 21. So, um, do you think, David, could you give me a little bit of uh, a little bit of context on Lejeune, sort of how the discovery came to be, what the kind of mode of analysis was, and, you know, really who is he and what was uh, his struggle particularly? Well, uh, you know, Jérôme Lejeune is, is an absolutely fascinating individual. It's, it's funny that we're having this interview now because I had an interview this morning with a French journalist about the whole controversy around Lejeune, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, so Jérôme Lejeune was a French physician and researcher uh, who in the 1950s found himself employed in a large research lab in Paris that was, uh, that was led by 
a very senior professor of pediatrics named Raymond Turpin. And uh, Turpin himself had been interested in these groups of, um, of adolescents and children who are then called Mongolian, um, you know, Mongolian uh, in French. Um, and, uh, you know, the older term, we can talk about terms later on in this interview. Um, and there have been a lot of discussion in the 30s and 40s about what caused Mongolism, as it was then called. Um, and, you know, Turpin had his own ideas that there might be something sort of genetic going on or congenital going on, but he couldn't quite figure it out. And so Lejeune's role was to further this research under the tutelage of this Raymond Turpin. Now, at the same time that, that Lejeune was doing this research, he was joined by a, a French woman doctor named Martha Gautier, who had been doing a fellowship in the United States. Uh, and she was very um, knowledgeable about tissue culturing and about sort of recent staining techniques regarding um, chromosomal analysis. And to make a, a fairly long story short, uh, both Lejeune and Gautier, uh, you know, managed to do analysis, chromosomal analysis, on just a small handful of, of uh, children with Down syndrome, um, Mongolian children, as they were then called. Um, and um, because of breakthroughs in the middle of the 1950s in terms of chromosomal analysis, they were able to identify that uh, Mongolism was caused by a, a trisomy, uh, an extra 21st chromosome. And... You know, in the middle of the 1950s, it was sort of like the space race of the 60s, right? There was all sorts of exciting things happening in human genetics. It was more or less sort of coming into existence. And the French team sort of rushed their research to publication and managed to more or less beat a British team and an American team and a Swedish team by a few months uh, and to claim that they were the first to identify it. Now, um, the reason why there's a big caveat and footnote to this is that this has now exploded into a huge scientific controversy in France because Lejeune died oh, about 15 years ago of pancreatic cancer, but Marta Gauthier is still alive. She's 92 years old and she claims that in fact she was the one who made the discovery and Lejeune more or less stole her discovery and pushed her aside and took all the credit. Um, and that's a huge scientific uh, controversy right now in France. It's quite interesting to sort of follow. Um, but obviously Lejeune can't respond to this because he's dead. Uh, so, and there's a whole founda you know, foundation, Lejeune Foundation, the Fondation Lejeune, that is, you know, stewing Gautier, and it's all, it's all quite a mess in France right now. Um, and so the journalist this morning was, uh, from France was interviewing me about this controversy. So, um, so that's, that's a whole controversy around who discovered, and we've seen this before in the history of science, whether it's, you know, the double helix or what have you, you know, there's, there's all sorts of sort of contested discoveries. And the discovery of the trisomy 21 has now entered that realm of one of the great contested discoveries of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And then also at one level, personally, uh, Lejeune was very conflicted, as you, uh, as you tell us, about the potential uses of chromosomal diagnosis, um, you know, for, uh, for diag in diagnoses that could potentially uh, lead to the justification of abortion. So he sort of yeah. had this, uh, well, he had more than just a religious drive in him. <laughs> well, and, no, uh, could you explain that? This is the other layer to the story, is that um, Jérôme Lejeune was a devout Catholic, 
And, I, you know, he was conducting chromosomal analysis, um, you know, with, I guess, an expectation that within a decade, this would lead to a cure, right? It would be a way of curing the phenotype of Down syndrome or, you know, somehow reversing it. Uh, and he, you know, in his writings, he firmly believed this. He sort of said, oh, well, you know, it's great that we've discovered the trisomy 21, but this is a first step towards uh, more or less solving the riddle of, of, of Down syndrome. Um, and, you know, they didn't, right? And, you know, the scientific community hasn't in 50 years. And what, in fact, did happen, in fact, was that the discovery of, of chromosomal anomalies became entangled with the rise of amniocentesis. And that itself became informed by the liberalization of abortion laws in Western countries in the late 60s and 1970s. And so Lejeune was horrified that that his great contribution to science was, in his opinion, to enable the selective termination of Down syndrome fetuses. And as a Catholic, this, 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 this did horrify him. And in the 1970s, he becomes uh, a prominent spokesperson in Europe for the pro-life movement. And, and this leads him to be sort of ostracized, or at least marginalized, by the genetics community, by the scientific community in France, makes him a controversial figure. Uh, and, you know, he actually becomes embraced by John Paul II and is elevated to the, you know, the Papal Scientific Committee uh, advising the Pope at that time on scientific matters. But it makes him a controversial figure in the history of science. And, uh, and quite frankly, he gets sort of portrayed as a quite conservative figure within the debate over the liberalization of abortion in France. Mm, thank you for that. And so I think that with that... Um Jerome's, uh, Jerome Lejeune's life and uh, priorities sort of accurately uh, reflect the kind of, you know, commingled uh, sets of, um, you know, camps of social issues, of, of scientific approaches that really kind of drive this narrative. So I want to uh, now take us back to uh, where the book begins, which in a way is trying to set the context for um, the, I guess, the development of um, psychiatric diagnoses of um, kind of congenital disabilities uh, and also framed in the uh, context of um, causation and looking at uh, things like uh, environmental health. So could you explain a bit more about, um, you know, the sort of like setting the stage in the 19th century for, um, you know, the dis uh, I guess the not discovery, but um, the um, the framing of uh, Down syndrome as it came to be known, or Mongolism as it was at the time, as a specific uh, disorder, as an isolated disorder. The origins of the Mongolism um, they they are quite fascinating. Uh, Mongolism or Mongoloid idiocy was coined by John Langdon Down, and I mentioned him earlier in the interview. He was the second superintendent of the Earlswood Asylum, that institution just south of London, the first institution for the developmentally disabled. And Langdon Down's ideas were um, a mixture of medical theorizing, but also sort of anthropological theorizing. And so Langdon Down was a member of the London Anthropological Society in the 1850s and 1860s. And he was quite interested in the sort of cardinal issue of the early 1860s, which was race. And you can understand that, you know, your American Civil War was going on uh, at that time. Um, debates over slavery, debates over the relationship between the races, in, in quotation marks. And, you know, 
anthropological circles throughout the Western world were sort of debating the nature of humankind. You know, were the races all from the same origin? Were they, were they, did they come from separate origins? And what implications did that, did that have in terms of their, their rights, their citizenship, etc.? And so Langdon Down was, you know, was part of this debate and interested in these ideas. And he was also obviously the medical superintendent of an institution of a couple hundred children, some of whom we would now say have Down syndrome. And so he sort of noticed that this group of children all seemed to look alike. And in his sort of, I guess, racially informed way of understanding the world, he thought that they looked quite Asian or in his term, quite Mongolian. And so he sort of thought, well, you know, maybe this is sort of an interesting aspect of the debate. You know, here we have children of Caucasian parents who appear to be Mongolian. So does that mean there's sort of racial reversion or skipping between races? And so he's, this is more or less what he's writing about. And he publishes a paper in 1866, 1867, um, in a journal that would ultimately become the British Psychiatric Journal, uh, in which he articulates an ethnic that is a racial classification of developmental disability. Uh, and he obviously famously talks about this group, this very large identifiable group of what he calls Mongol, Mongoloid or Mongolian idiots. Uh, and the name sticks. It sticks for more or less 100 years. Uh, because other people in other institutions say, yeah, you know, I've seen, I understand what he's talking about. Even if they contested is theorizing about it, they, that the name was quite powerful and gets adopted both scientifically and I guess, you know, within general popular audience for, you know, three or four generations after that. And so Mongolism or Mongolian idiocy or what have you um, finds its way into medical journals, into educational journals, into psychological journals, into newspapers, what have you, um, from about the end of the 1860s uh, until there's a movement to change the name in the 1960s. So it has a sort of 100-year span. Mm -hmm. And then even before then, I think that you uh, you really nicely set up the uh, the issue of idiocy becoming, a as it was called at the time, of course, uh, becoming a medical problem and also how uh, it became, well, <laughs> along the way to becoming a medical problem, uh, became first defined as a legal problem, uh, particularly in your discussion of uh, the English common law. So could you expand on that uh, for us for a bit? Sure. So, you know, it's it sort of... Sometimes it's hard to write a book about a disorder and have chapter or a disease or what have you and have chapters before it's actually been named as a disease. You know, this, is, this raises interesting, you know, philosophical, epistemological issues. But I, I did have one chapter in which I wanted to outline how idiocy as a term dates back hundreds of years within common law. Uh, and then gets slowly adopted by the medical profession. It dates back at least to the 13th century, in which the common law differentiates between people who are uh, not capable of managing their own affairs from birth, that is, you know, as it were, con congenital idiots, uh, and then also another group of individuals who were of sound mind but then lost their ability to manage their affairs, who are often referred to as, as lunatics. And... And I know it's sort of simplistic, and these are terms that over time became, ter pro, you know, pejorative terms. Um, but at the time, they were, you know, there were legal terms 
because the state had to have a mechanism to intervene. You know, what do you do when someone, when you have the inheritance of property, but the individual is not capable of managing that property, right? You know, it's sort of a basic legal question. Mm-hmm. Um, and so over the course of the evolution of the common law, from the sort of the high medieval period onwards, you have courts and legal precedent to try to define what to do in situations where an heir is is an idiot or uh, an heir becomes a lunatic, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And so those terms are used legally. And then in terms of the administration of uh, of laws such as the Elizabethan poor laws that emerged in the early modern period onwards, um, there are different categories of people who need to be assisted uh, there might be vagrants and wanderers, and you know there's the aged, but there's also groups who get defined as idiots and lunatics, whom local authorities are responsible for providing sort of basic shelter or welfare to. Uh, and um, you know, certain parts of the United States adopted aspects of the the English Poor Laws, but obviously this is this was deeply embedded in the English Poor Law system from more or less about 1600 onwards. Uh, and both the old poor law and also the the Victorian poor law, the so-called new poor law. So we see all sorts of poor law administrative records talking about idiot children and talking about lunatics. Uh, So these were quite sort of legal administrative documents that obviously date back hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. And then one interesting that you suggest is um, you raise the possibility that uh, consensus through the community uh, possibly did more uh, than medical authority in deciding, uh, you know, on these cases and mitigating whether an individual um, may have uh, been uh, possessed of idiocy or lunacy. And could you expand a bit more, I guess, on the, I guess, on the received views of the history of psychiatry there and, you know, why this... um, I guess why suggesting that there was much more power in the hands of the community legal system than a medical authority uh, really makes a difference. Yeah, well, I think that traditionally medical historians have made certain assumptions about the rise of psychiatry and the rise of organized medicine in the 19th century. And one of the assumptions has been that, you know, the medical profession was somehow, you know, all-powerful or or near (laughs) all-powerful. Uh, and that the medical ideas, if I can use an economics term, sort of trickle down to the, you know, the ignorant masses. And that was a dominant theme in the history of medicine for a long time. Uh, and sometimes it was, you know, we talk about medicalization, right? But uh, inherent in the idea of medicalization is, is a sort of sense of ideas that are trickling down from learned medical individuals who also implicitly have some sort of professional or self-interest in terms of medicalizing conditions, okay? Mm-hmm. And what I've found in my 20 years as a historian of psychiatry, historian of medicine, historian of disability, is, is not that at all. In fact, what uh, I became convinced of is that historically the medical profession had actually a very limited and circumscribed role in terms of both defining um, lunacy and idiocy um, and also um, in terms of controlling institutionalization, when people were institutionalized, when people were discharged, etc. And I, I was very much a group of younger scholars who said, 
you know, who are rejecting older traditions, to a certain extent drawn from Foucault, but from others, mm-hmm. uh, and saying that, no, in fact, the community, family members, these are the people who had the real power in terms of defining the boundaries of disease and disorder, deciding on institutionalization, negotiating with medical practitioners, the types of treatment, etc. You know, it's not just me, it was, but, but I was part of, I think, a group of people who came and challenged an older set of assumptions embedded in the history of medicine about, you know, this sort of top-down approach of both medicine and more specifically of psychiatry. Um, and there's many different examples of that throughout throughout history and different historical epochs, but as a sort of general approach, that's where I'm coming from. And it doesn't mean that psychiatry was unimportant historically. It just means that we've, uh, I, I believe that we have vastly exaggerated the importance of psychiatry, of, psychi- of the importance of psychiatric diagnosis, uh, the role of psychiatry, the power that individual psychiatrists had. Um, I think it's much more circumscribed and limited and much later than most of the historical literature implies. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. And, you know, to, to now go and proceed in the other direction entirely, uh, the sure. following chapter uh, discusses more uh, kind of the life and work of John Langdon Down um, and the asylum that he worked in um, and sort of, you know, sets, uh, sets his work and his, uh, you know, his institutional struggles also in the ideological context of uh, the rise of Darwinism in mid to late Victorian Britain. So could you, uh, I guess, explain a bit more about, uh, you know, Down? Uh, career path and uh, sort of, you know, his, uh, I guess, his own enculturation in, um, you know, the world of asylums and how that sort of meshed with his uh, desire to um, become a medical authority. Yes, well, you know, we, we tend to think of the history of medicine as something dating back to Galen, Hippocrates, or whomever. Um, and, you know, there, there's obviously some, some truth in that in terms of the, the heritage of, uh, of Greco-Roman approaches to, to medicine and Arabic approaches to medicine. But, you know, in, in reality, the medical profession as we now know it came into formation in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, and indeed, psychiatry itself as a specialization did not come into formation until the early 20th century. So John Lenning Down was not a psychiatrist. In, in, in the strict sense of the word, because it just simply didn't exist. Um, John Langdon Down was a medical practitioner who uh, graduates more or less at the time when finally the British Parliament manages to pass a medical act which unifies the different types of medical practitioners, the physicians, the surgeons, the apothecaries, etc., and creates a sort of regulatory framework. Uh, so, you know, and that's really the, you know, the end of the 1850s. And so, you know, the medical profession is just sort of becoming organized and they're trying to sort of crowd out what they consider to be alternative practitioners, whether it's, you know, homeopaths or naturopaths or whatever. And so, so we have the, we have the medical profession that's trying to sort of consolidate its power and to a certain extent consolidate its power in medical institutions, whether they're you know, tuberculosis sanatoria or the lunatic asylums or the general infirmaries or what have you. And so Langdon Down sort of finds himself in this very unusual institution, you know, at, at that time the only one for developmental disability, uh, but, but then others emerge in the United States and Canada and Britain in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. 
And so what Down tries to do quite astutely in terms of professional advancement is to position himself as sort of a leader of the small group of individuals who are interested in idiocy. Um, and he positions that group as a sort of subgroup of these other asylum medical superintendents who are forming this very vague group of individuals interested in diseases of the mind or what was sometimes called in the English language psychological medicine. Um, and it's only over time and over a generation or two that that evolves into what we now understand as being uh, psychiatry. Um, but they don't call themselves psychiatrists. Many call themselves alienists. Many just mm -hmm. call themselves medical superintendents of lunatic asylums. Um, and psychiatry itself did not exist as a sort of area of specialization as we now know it. So, you know, what I try to talk about in the book is how there's a lot of people who are positioning themselves professionally, who are writing textbooks, trying to sort of stake their professional ground, who are trying to pose particular theories about the etiology of either, of either lunacy or the etiology of idiocy or, you know, different treatment approaches. But it's quite fluid and it's quite contested throughout the 1860s, the 1870s, the 1880s, and the 1890s. Uh, there isn't a lot of consensus uh, and but there is a lot of, as it were, professional positioning uh, that is going on at the time. Mm -hmm. And that's where we get uh, John Langdon Down ending up as the more or less uh, him and his wife as the sort of superintendents of this institution. And you know, so <laughs> uh, obviously that that ends badly for Down. And could you sort of give a little bit of an overview of that uh, of that narrative? Because there's a huge, as you sort of outline, there's a huge um, you know I guess disparity between uh, you know these public and private interests. I mean, so these yeah. institutions are being set up obviously uh, for the public good, kind of alongside you know Victorian what we might call Victorian improvement policies, sure. uh, while there's also kind of a growing, uh, you know, upper class consciousness about <laughs> mental disorders defined as such. So there's yeah. really, there's real competing interests there and that you, well, uh, describe pretty well. So could well, you uh, expand on that, that a bit? Yeah, briefly, uh, the Earlswood Asylum was a charitable asylum. So it wasn't supposed to be an institution for the wealthy. Many existed in the United States and in Britain at the time, you know, these sort of private madhouses or private homes for the wealthy, but it wasn't. It was supposed to be a charitable institution for the respectable poor, which is a wonderful Victorian turn of phrase. Mm -hmm. uh, respectable poor meant people really couldn't afford private care, but people who had not fallen upon uh, the poor law. So it wasn't a pauper institution, right? It wasn't a, a workhouse or anything, but it also wasn't a private institution. And, you know, Langdon Down was, was the head of this institution that obviously was being supported by the well-to-do of Victorian society. You know, very well-off patrons who would come for soirees and, you know, fets and different occasions, give money in support of the institution. And so perhaps unsurprisingly, people who are in a position like Langdon Down, who are gaining expertise, who are sort of claiming to be, you know, the national... Uh, expert on the you know on, on the care and treatment of idiot children would start to be approached by very wealthy families who perhaps had a childhood Down syndrome, for example, and say, you know, can we admit our child? And he would sort of say, well, you know, no, this is a charitable institution. There isn't a lot. We have a couple private beds, but you know, that's not the mandate. And you know, it's unclear exactly what happened. But after about I don't know seven or eight years of being medical superintendent. Down clearly started to take patients on the side 
from wealthy families uh, in contravening implicitly his his contract with the charitable board who ran the institution. Uh, and there's this big showdown, and he effectively resigns in 1868, and he then takes all these private patients with him and establishes a private institution called Normansfield in Hampton Wick, which is sort of west-southwest of London. Um, And um, he establishes his own private institution for about 100, 140 patients that is specifically for for children of wealthy families, in which he charges quite a considerable amount and becomes a very, very wealthy man uh, near the end of his career. Um, And, you know, Down was not singular in this. It was not uncommon for people to sort of make their name in charitable institutions, and then establish their own private homes or their private practices later on in life. Uh, and this was a, a, you know, a not uncommon pattern of medical specialization in the last third of the 19th century. And certainly he, he is a prime example of that. He, he ended up dying a very rich man, and he bequeathed his, um, uh, his, his, his money, his legacy, and the institution to, his, to two of his sons who were both medically trained, um, uh, one of whom, Reginald Langdon Down, uh, became quite well-known himself in terms of research on Down syndrome in the first two decades of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Great, and that's where you know, the next chapter uh, leaves off in the narrative. Uh, but the next chapter also shifts thematically, I think, to focus uh, more on how people struggle to define uh, accurate metrics and ways of you know, diagnosing or uh, describing uh, this syndrome as a specific uh, disorder as such. So um, first of all, you, the next chapter is called uh, the simian crease, and you talk about a very specific uh, crease in the hand that's found um, in patients with what we now refer to as Down syndrome, um, but also about the history of intelligence testing as applied to these cases. Um, so yeah, uh, I'd like to hear more from you um, about the you know development of these different metrics. Yeah, well, the um, it's it's a somewhat complicated story, but. The early 20th century, one sees the emergence of, um, of educational testing. Well, even, I will step back one, one, one step further, and, you know, one sees the emergence of elementary education. Uh, in Britain, in the United States, in Canada, and other Western countries, more or less in the last two decades of the 19th century, the first two decades of the 20th century, one sees the introduction of compulsory elementary education. Of course, people were, you know, there's elementary education before that, but one sees compulsory, you know, national or state or provincial elementary education, usually to the age of, I don't know, 12 or 14, depending upon the jurisdiction. And what happens then at the turn of the century, one sees a sort of flood of children into the classroom at the same time as the emergence of, you know, a sort of an education, educational profession of educational experts. And so perhaps unsurprisingly, the, the sort of flooding in of these children into schools and the surveillance of the state leads to an impulse to categorize the children, but also a recognition of the variety of medical and, and um, psychiatric developmental disabilities that these children have, right? Everything from, you know, rickets to, you know, to Down syndrome. And so the state responds in part by enabling and encouraging the 
the measurement and testing of school children in the first two decades of the 20th century. And that takes many forms. You know, it takes the form of, of school nurses and doctors literally doing, you know, this, the inspection of children, right, um, measuring them and weighing them and what have you. But it also takes a form of, of testing of children. Uh, and uh, one sees in the first decade of the 20th century a number of, uh, of measurement techniques, including the Simon Binet test and, you know, what, what becomes the IQ test as a way of trying to categorize children. And so, unsurprisingly, you one sees a whole bunch of literature emerging, both in the medical journals, but also educational journals and psychology journals, about um, children who are at the low end of the, the spectrum of testing. And so that prompts all sorts of new terminology that emerges, you know, the uh, you know, the profound idiot and, you know, the imbecile and the, you know, the moron and all these sort of terms that we sort of cringe when we hear nowadays, but we're being used as a way of trying to grade different levels of intellectual ability or conversely intellectual disability. Um, and so that movement, as we know, that movement continues throughout the 20th century, you know, children being uh, given IQ tests and being ranked uh, on some sort of spectrum or, or Poisson curve in terms of their intellectual ability uh, and a decision to sort of say, okay, everyone below this level is considered to be developmentally disabled. Um, and but that's you know that's a that's a movement that's an approach to understanding intelligence that is obviously historically specific to a, a particular period, but it has a very specific social, obviously outcome. And the social outcome is that you know children below a certain testing level then get sent to either institutions or to special schools. For the disabled, whether they're special schools for the developmentally disabled or special schools for, uh, quote unquote, the blind, the deaf, the dumb, what have you. And so uh, compulsory education leads also to, um, uh, as it were, compulsory isolated or segregated education and segregation of, of children and adolescents with disabilities that dominates the 20th century until what, I guess, the, you know, mainstreaming of the 1970s and 80s. Mm-hmm. And for those of you uh, interested in picking up the book after this interview, there's a really there's some really great descriptions of the kind of different taxonomies that are emerging around this time in efforts to really more rigidly define, uh, well, to define means of actually acting uh, on these different mental categories. And you know, one of, uh, and the flip side of that is, in addition to trying to um, you know, find different, uh, you know, types and levels of uh, mental disability, um, there's also many who are looking for underlying causes. And this uh, brings us to the next chapter, which deals with the, uh, the rise of medical genetics and how uh, Down syndrome actually figures really prominently um, in the research of one of the major figures of early medical genetics, Lionel Penrose. And actually, to to go back to the beginning of the book, uh, David, there's a really uh, evocative personal case you describe of, um, you know, people, uh, researchers coming in attempting to uh, take, well, take blood samples from your family in particular. And what, from my understanding, this is not an isolated incident. Uh, so if, you, if you'd like to expand more on the history of uh, you know, genetic testing and how uh, uh, Down syndrome figures in this, we'd love to hear. So, 
Yeah, well, you know, I talked, I talked, uh, you know, I talked in part about this before when when we were discussing Lejeune, but you know, there was before human genetic testing became refined in the 1950s. Um, there were all sorts of competing theories about what caused Mongolism, as it was then called. And the thing is, nobody knew, right? But, you know, it was very suspicious because the the children born with Down syndrome all seemed to have very, very similar clusters of physical stigmata. Um, so this led a lot of people to sort of think, okay, it can't be multi-causal. There's got to be something that's going on congenitally, but we just don't know what. Uh, and, you know, the competing theories included um, a mother who was pregnant suffering from syphilis. There was a lot of discussion about a term that was used at the time called uterine exhaustion, the idea that somehow the mother was sort of more or less becoming exhausted and the, the, the basically the, the fetus wasn't fully developing, so children with Down syndrome were sort of like not fully developed children, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and this also intersected with statistical observation that Penrose and others were involved in, which more or less identified one of the factors that we know very well today, and that is that the incidence of, of Down syndrome increases with maternal age. Um, and so, you know, people knew that in, in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, but they're they're trying to put all the pieces together, but they they couldn't they couldn't quite figure out what it was. Uh, and as genetic research started to evolve in the 30s and 40s, there's a lot of people who said, you know, it's got to be it's got to be something genetic, uh, but they just didn't have the scientific techniques to be able to pinpoint what it was. Um, and uh, that, you know, that sort of came with, with a few sort of a few discoveries in terms of chromosomal analysis in the, in the 1950s. And then as where the race was on to sort of figure out, OK, what, what, what was actually causing Down syndrome? But before that, there was theories of alcoholism, theories of tuberculosis, theories of syphilis. You know, it went on and on. Um, but, you know, no one, no one could, could really um, could, could prove any of these theories. Mm-hmm. And so, um, one of the, I guess, uh, well, as we discussed before in the case of Lejeune, possibly unintended consequences of having, uh, these new diagnostic methods once, uh, karyotyping, um, for trisomy 21 became standard, um, was, I guess, the use of these, uh, the use of these tests as, uh, potential evidence in justifying, um, in justifying abortions or interventive, uh, procedures and pregnancies. So this, uh, I guess brings us to, well, uh, it sort of occupies a bit of this chapter, but, um, in your following chapter, uh, where, you know, we're sort of, uh, you know, describing, um, I guess Down syndrome moving into the mainstream as the chapter is called. Yeah. So there's a lot of really, um, there's, there's a lot of interesting tensions you describe here. And I just, um, you know, I wondered from you, uh, um, since we're sort of running out of time, it seems, uh, you know, when you're trying to look for, uh, and you discuss this a bit in the uh, epilogue, trying to look for a takeaway from this, you know, we see uh, the rise of all these different groups, um, or, you know, trying to prevent uh, these sorts of, um, you know, real tragedies from, uh, as they see it, from happening. Uh, you also then see a reciprocal move toward integrating um 
patients, uh, you know, uh, with Down syndrome into larger educational and social communities. So there's this real interesting tension that you describe. And I was wondering if you could expand on that a bit more. Yeah, in the final chapter of the book, I try to juxtapose two trends, two themes that seem at least on a level to be contradictory or intentional. Uh, the one theme which is evident to anyone over the age of 30, I guess, has been the remarkable movement to um, incorporate individuals with Down syndrome into, quote-unquote, mainstream society. And that obviously has taken, um, has manifested itself in, in, de- in many different areas. Um, it's in, One can see it in educational mainstreaming, um, movement away from institutions and schools to educational training in, as it were, quote-unquote, normal schools, local public schools. Uh, One sees it in the uh, generational downsizing and closure of mental retardation institutions, as they used to be called, you know, the long-stay psychiatric institutions. Um, One sees mainstreaming also in terms of... um, uh, employment for individuals with Down syndrome, uh, you know, individuals with Down syndrome in popular culture. You know, one one thinks of Glee, for example, with not one but two, you know, mm-hmm. uh, principal characters who had Down syndrome, which was quite quite mm-hmm. extraordinary. Um, uh, but there are precedents for that, of course. So, so there's this movement into the mainstream, and you know, the danger, of course, is we could, we become quite self congratulatory and say, "Well, look how far we've come. Look how you know tolerant we are." how progressive we are, etc. On the other hand, I've tried to interweave the genetics and therapeutic abortion narrative, um, and that is, you know, Lejeune's nightmare, if I can put it that way, you know, whereby the rise of amniocentesis, of prenatal testing, of genetic counseling, more or less position Down syndrome as the great danger of pregnant women, uh, and that the reason why the great impetus behind prenatal testing and therapeutic abortion should be to avoid having a child with Down syndrome. And so it seems to me that one could interpret that as being a persistence of very negative attitudes towards both Down syndrome as a disability um, and also the impact that having a Down syndrome child would have on your family. And, you know, perhaps on your other children. And there is a huge literature in the 1970s about how it would, like, destroy, you know, destroy, but it would, you know, be a disaster for, uh, you know, other children in the family. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, uh, you know, I allude to this in the prologue in the book in a somewhat comical, self-deprecatory manner about, you know, the testing that was done on myself and my brothers, you know, my oldest brother was a doctor, my, uh, you know, my second oldest brother, a lawyer, I'm a professor, you know, so obviously we weren't too damaged by having a sister uh, who has, who has Down syndrome. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of sort of sense that we'd be held back or we'd be, you know, I don't know, not, you know, psychologically nourished because all the attention would be on, you know, on, on my sibling, on my sister. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but you know that was that was sort of common thinking in the 1970s. So um, so there is that trend um, towards selective termination of Down syndrome fetuses, which becomes quite prominent from the 1970s onwards. And I 
I suggest, hasn't really changed that much at all. In fact, it, you know, prep, basically a year doesn't go by without a, another news story about a potential test which can be done earlier and you know, less invasively, what have you. The whole point being that you know, we need to get rid of or eradicate um, this type of condition. You know, a disability, if you were. But, you know, some people don't like the use, even, even using the term disability around Down syndrome. And I understand the arguments. So, you know, so that seems to be a sort of counter trend. It suggests that, in fact, perhaps we haven't come that far in terms of understanding disability, uh, in terms of valuing different types of ability, in terms of our ethical stance vis-a-vis people who are different, people who are somehow not as intelligent or not as productive as we are. And... You know, I, I try to leave, you know, end the book with, by raising these questions. I, I don't think there, there are sort of necessarily lessons to be learned from, from any history, but I, I think it, it should inform our ethical stance uh, in terms of how we understand the world, and in the case of my book, how we understand people who are born with Down syndrome. And that's what I've tried to do, but there is a sort of the, the ambiguous legacy of the last 30 years or so and it raises a lot of questions that I don't think are, are, are easy, easy to answer uh, and suggest themes that are not easy to reconcile. Mm-hmm. And you do a really great job framing those issues, I think. And, well, thank you. Know, and you oh, sorry. And you're right, I think, also about it being difficult for many people, uh, despite this movement to you know integrate and normalize um, uh, patients with Down syndrome in the community. You see, I keep sort of reverting back to this uh, patients with individuals suffering from well, you know, uh, type of language. There are many people in disability studies who who would cringe the use of of use of patient. Right, right. Really, not like the idea of of, of suffering. Because they were saying, well, I'm not suffering, right? And and I've given, you know, I give, as you could imagine, I give papers all the time to, uh, you know, audiences, Down syndrome associations, what have you, both of parents but also of individuals with Down syndrome who really don't like the term disability at all and don't like the fact that disability is in my title. And I, I understand the critique. And so, um, you know, it's it's tricky territory. It's not just tricky territory in terms of the language you use, but uh, the way we, we, we frame the entire issue, right? Uh so it's it's uh, and there aren't easy answers, right? You know, and so it's just a matter of being open and frank uh, about the discussion uh, and um, and sort of honest about about the issues that are at stake. I think. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that. And you know, on that note, I think that uh, we're running uh, we're beginning to run a bit out uh, out of time, and uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time this evening. So I just wanted to ask you quickly if we could end. Um, if we could end by discussing about the current projects that you're working on. Uh, Well, I'd be happy to. It it actually um, has, well, I shouldn't say it has has very little to do with the history of Down syndrome. I'm actually uh, in the final stages of writing a history of the hospital for for sick children in Toronto, referred to as sick kids in Canada. This was a a world-famous pediatric institution that, amongst other things, um, you know, uh, did the pioneering work on pablum, the famous children's uh, food, uh, very famous pediac- pediatric, cardi- uh, uh, pediatric uh, cardiac surgery um, called the mustard procedure, uh, many other things that are sort of well-known within the medical community. And I'm, I'm writing a book on the history of that hospital, which is now about 140 years old, uh, and um, it's, again, both a sort of social and medical history that I'm writing um, uh, to make to make 
to make it accessible to a, to a general audience. But I'm also, as a Canadian historian in medicine, trying to weave dominant themes in the history of health and medicine in Canada and into it because there is no, uh, there's no survey, there's no general uh, text or book on the history of health and medicine in Canada, unlike uh, the United States or Britain. And so uh, I'm, I'm, there's sort of multiple uh, goals at play at the same time. So that's one project that's almost done. Uh, but in fact, uh, the other major project that I'm doing has, has very, very little to do with the history of Down syndrome. Uh, it is a, a multi-year project on the immigration of foreign trained doctors um, in the 1960s and 70s. So put put very briefly, um, you may or may not know that uh, at this time of the great expansion, the pop, you know, the, the baby boom and the expansion of the welfare state in Britain, Canada, and and the United States, um, the health services were um, were desperately short of doctors and nurses. And so, between you know, in the 1960s and 70s, literally thousands of foreign trained doctors and nurses emigrated to Britain, Canada, the United States, and populated hospitals. And uh, as well as urban hospitals, as well as rural and remote areas, uh, and made up about a third of the entire medical workforce by the end of the 1970s. There isn't, uh, there isn't, there isn't very much about the, Im- the the influence and impact of foreign trained doctors. You know, there were literally, for example, in the in the around 1970, there's literally about a thousand Indian doctors who were arriving in the U.S. on an annual basis. Um, and that actually increases to two or three thousand a year um, that are arriving in the U.S. Um, and it's a fascinating social history. It's a fascinating history of, the, of immigration because you know the immigration laws in Canada, the U.S. are changing to be less sort of racially based. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also a very interesting story in the history of the medical profession in North America, but also in Britain and other countries. But I'm focusing mainly on sort of the axis of Britain, Canada, and the U.S., because there's a lot of movement between the countries. Uh, so anyways, that's my, my latest project, and that will sort of be rolled out over the next few years. Great. Well, we really look forward to seeing uh, those two projects in print. And I just wanted to thank you again, uh, David, for your time and uh, for joining us here on New Books in Medicine. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. You've been listening to New Books in Medicine. Thanks so much, and we hope that you'll join us again next time. 